Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome, everybody, to episode 14 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Chloe. How are you? Hello. Good. I'm excited that we're both here and reasonably well. I feel like a flaky flake the last couple of weeks, and I hate that, so I'm pretty excited. Yeah. No, we've made it. One of these days, we'll get two episodes in a row happening, so <laughs> Next <be> week. <laughs> Uh, but I'm pretty pumped up for the case today, leading on from our last episode on Wanda Beach. But before we get to that, we have a few new Patreon supporters to thank, Chloe. Yes, welcome to Chris Camilleri, Kate Young, Renee Marie, Sarah Light, Ruby Getty, John Declan and Veronica Sixsmith. Thank you for your support, everyone. Much appreciated. We'd like to advise listeners that this episode contains graphic descriptions involving pedophilia and paraphilia crimes involving young children, and discussions about extreme and abnormal sexual desires. So we advise our listeners to exercise self-care and to look after yourself if you choose to continue listening to this episode. Leading on from last episode's case on the Wanda Beach murders, the frenzied killings of Marianne Schmidt and Christine Sharrock, we're talking about one of the two popular suspects in that case in detail today. We took a deep dive into the sadistic mind of one already, Christopher Wilder, a few weeks back now, but today we're going to hit a whole new level of sick and twisted. And it's hard to think that you can get much worse than Wilder and the murders of the girls at Wanda, but what this man did, the man we're talking about today, what he fantasised about, what he wrote and did drawings about, churned the stomachs of the most seasoned police detectives. And that's just what we know, what we don't know what he was capable of and may have done, might just be the most sickening thought of all. Sunday, 27th of July, 1969. Ski Beach near Warneet, Western Port Bay, Victoria. He drove his Datsun station wagon to a quiet little spot, away from prying eyes where he could be alone with his thoughts and fantasies. He was rostered off today. Perfect timing. Sundays were great for this. People were so relaxed and unaware of their surroundings. He smiled at the picture he'd drawn of a young boy in his sketchbook. 
he was mutilated, this boy. And the words next to him read, If he's under three, the penis comes off. He had five pairs of women's underwear on over his own, and two pairs of plastic pants on over that. He urinated and defecated himself, which sexually aroused him to the point of climax. And then, half his luck, a pair of young kids walked past his car, a boy and a girl. He'd had this dream, this vision before. A vision that was time to make a reality. This was the mind of Derek Bercy. Eleven-year-old Shane Spiller and twelve-year-old Yvonne Tui had gone to the beach for the afternoon. The youngsters didn't have any concrete plans, it was the school holidays, and they thought they might poke around for some crabs, have a swim, or take a wander across the sand dunes. Shane had brought his tomahawk for fun to chop a few things up along the way. Yvonne had moved to the area around 12 months earlier with her parents Francis and Nancy and her two sisters, Denise and Maxine. Her father ran the boat hire business, so after Yvonne had spent the morning there helping out, she got the green light to go with her friend Shane to the beach. Shane liked Yvonne. They got along well. She wasn't like all the other prissy girls. She had a laugh and was described as a bit of a tomboy. Shane liked that and he liked her attitude. She was feisty, stood up for herself. They arrived at the beach. No one was around except for one guy who was sitting by himself in his station wagon, which had a Navy sticker on the back. The pair bickered for a moment about which direction they were going to head in once they'd hit the beach. They split and went in different directions, but Shane eventually relented and returned to Yvonne. Seconds later, a man had her in his grasp, one arm around her neck and shoulder, the other with a red-handled knife to her throat. Shane waved his tomahawk in an effort to ward off the man with the cold blue eyes. Put that down or I'll hurt the girl, the man said. He had a high-pitched voice. He wanted Shane as well. Tell your friend to come over here, he said to Yvonne. Shane held his tomahawk, frozen on the spot with fear, until the man, holding Yvonne captor, gave chase. Shane turned and sprinted away through the bush in search of help. Yvonne cried out for Shane to help her, that the man was going to cut her neck. The man dragged her away to his Datsun station wagon. Meanwhile, Shane had ran and found help, locating some passers-by who drove him to the Tui household, where Yvonne's parents promptly contacted police after Shane's descriptions of the man and his vehicle. Shane was able to describe the man, his vehicle, and a sticker with the word Navy on the car in vivid detail to police. This led police to attend the HMAS Cerberus, which was around 35 kilometres from the location in Warneet where Yvonne had been abducted. The police, with Shane Spiller in tow, located the light-coloured Datsun station wagon New South Wales Registration EUU786 with a visible Navy sticker and another that said Go Well, Go Shell on the back of the car. The car was recently washed, the engine still warm and the back seat was folded down, a mattress and blanket laying on top. Police boarded the Cerberus and spoke with officers in charge who identified the owner of the vehicle, a young naval rating named Derek Percy, and they took the police to him. Percy had arrived back at Cerberus after allegedly visiting Phillip Island for the day, having played football that morning, he told one of his cabin mates. None of his cabin mates liked him and referred to him as Spook, due to his uncanny ability to show up in doorways mysteriously, giving everyone a momentary fright. 
Percy attempted to make conversation with his cabin mates when he arrived back on the Cerberus, but they weren't interested. So he went to do his dobeying, which is a naval term for laundry, and it was mid-wash that the police arrived. Derek Percy was wearing his wet, recently washed jeans, bloodstains present on them, and other items of his clothing he was attempting to wash. The police also found pornographic magazines in his locker and some sickening hand-drawn pictures Percy admitted to creating. The police detained him, questioned him, and Percy, the weepy, blue-eyed, unemotive, naval rating with a high-pitched voice, initially denied any involvement in the abduction of Avontui, but Percy eventually broke down, exclaiming, Sometimes I do things that I just can't remember afterwards. And in the end, the evidence was overwhelming. Shane Spiller identified him again, and Percy would end up confessing to not only the abduction, but to the murder of Yvonne Tui. The police then had to tell the devastated Tui family of their loss, and that they had the man and were working on pinpointing the location of Yvonne's body. The Tui family, once a tight-knit clan, were shattered by this. Yvonne's mother wailed in grief and her father stoic with bald fists. They had to tell their other two daughters that their sister wouldn't be coming home because she was dead. Percy eventually led police to Yvonne's body, which he discarded under a bunch of tea trees in a paddock at Devon Meadows, adjacent to the Baxter Turidan Road in the Western Port Bay area, about 10 kilometres from the beach. She'd been completely eviscerated, her throat cut, disemboweled, a filthy rag shoved in her mouth and her body smeared in faeces. Percy would eventually detail the sheer brutality and humiliation he'd exposed the young girl to in her final moments, the things he'd forced her to do, which are almost too disgusting to repeat, but you can probably deduce from Percy's fetishism what he did. And the only reasoning he gave for murdering her was so she wouldn't get away and tell on him. It's around this time the police get a hold of some pretty twisted notebooks Derek Percy had kept, clearly detailing the many sick fantasies he had had about children over the years. And it would be the details of these fantasies that police would use later to match up with many unsolved Australian child murders. These entries detailed abduction, torture, mutilation, cannibalism, rape murder, cross-dressing, and the details of his urination and defecation fetishes. His plans for abductions were detailed and methodical, well-planned, many including lists of items to take, food, drink, supplies for the crime, and also lists of demands to make from the victims, have them buy pantyhose and knickers for him, and then force them at gunpoint to, in his own words, piss and shit on him. The content of the journals churned the stomachs of the most seasoned police detectives who had to take turns and breaks while reading through them. While being held in remand awaiting his trial, the Victoria Police Homicide Squad called in an old childhood friend of Percy's, a guy named Ron Anderson. Ron was also a police officer assigned to general duties at the time. He and Percy had fallen out of touch since their childhood, but the theory was he might open up to Anderson somewhat. Anderson had no official brief, just to go in and talk to his old childhood pal. Anderson remembered Percy as a quiet and personable young man, and he was completely stunned and sickened when the homicide detectives showed him photos of Yvonne Tui post-mortem. Anderson couldn't reconcile what he was seeing with the young man he knew back in Mount Beauty. He greeted Percy upon entering the cell, and Percy greeted him with a shaky high voice. 
Hi, Ron. Geez, it really looks like I've fucked up this time. And it was the this time that Ron caught at the very beginning of this interaction that got his mind ticking over, ticking over about the plethora of other unsolved child murders that had haunted the country for the last couple of years. What am I going to do, Ron? Percy sulked to his old childhood mate. Anderson told him he didn't know what the best option was, but perhaps he needed to see a doctor. Anderson assured his old friend that this was probably his best option to get an assessment from a professional. Then he asked Percy, were there any others, mate? Percy howled like a banshee, sobbing pitifully into his cupped hands, and said, I just can't remember anything. Anderson told Percy it'd be best to run through a few cases. He'd jot anything down that Percy remembered. Better to have it all out in the open now than to have it come out later. That was Anderson's angle in trying to help Percy. Anderson proceeded to question Percy about the disappearance of Linda Stilwell from St Kilda. Percy said yeah, he was in St Kilda that day, driving along the Esplanade on his way to the White Ensign Club for some drinks. A strange place for Percy to attend the White Ensign as it was a social drinking venue big with sailors. Percy did neither drink nor socialise particularly well. Anderson probed again. Simon Brook in Sydney Percy nodded and said he drove his brother to work that day and they turned off the railway cutting where the Brook boy was found. Anderson, growing more staggered by the minute but trying to keep it under wraps, confirms, so you drove past the same spot in Sydney on the day Simon Brook was killed. Percy confirmed with a simple yes, but he couldn't remember anything, any details, if he had committed this heinous act. Closest he'd come was, I could have, but he just didn't remember anything. Then Anderson went to the biggest unsolved disappearance in Australian history, a case that changed things for kids and parents alike in Australia, the disappearance of the three Beaumont children. I was in Adelaide at the time, Percy said. Anderson, his surprise now well and truly on display, confirms again with Percy that he was in Adelaide, near Glenelg Beach, on the day the Beaumont children disappeared but Percy once again says he couldn't remember anything else. Anderson asks him directly, as he's being ushered out of the cell by a pushy prison guard who said his time was up, Derek, did you kill the Beaumont children? Percy said he could have, but couldn't remember a thing. But he confirmed he was at the locations of all three of those cases on the days of the disappearance or murder of the aforementioned. Anderson was stunned as he left. No official record of Anderson's interview was taken, just his notes, no recording, no statement, nothing. Homicide detectives interviewed Percy formally after this, but didn't get anything more than admissions of being in the area, and he couldn't remember anything else. They'd try numerous ways to budge, numerous tactics, asking how he thought Simon Brooks' family must be feeling, and then trying to appeal to his logical side, in a similar way to how Anderson had done, but it didn't amount to anything. Percy wasn't exactly stoic through all of this. He was a sobbing mess, really. Police eventually discovered more evidence in the area where Yvonne Tui's body was discovered. A couple of pairs of plastic pants, women's knickers, and five pairs of men's underwear, all soiled with urine and faeces. Police pressed for a reason on why he would do this, to which Percy replied without a hint of embarrassment or emotion, It's just a feeling I get sometimes to shit myself. Percy would be charged and go to trial for the murder of Yvonne Tui. 
But we're going to discuss the outcome of that towards the latter part of this episode, because as we've touched on already, despite this being the first known and final crime Percy committed and was caught for, it's just the beginning of a potentially extensive criminal history that would unravel in the time after this. So we've got a pretty good idea by this point of what made Derek Percy tick. Now we're going to rewind right back to his childhood to look at how he came to this. Derek Ernest Percy was born in Strathfield, New South Wales, on the 15th of December 1948. He was the first child to Ernest and Elaine Percy. Derek was described as a very pretty baby, creamy white skin, piercing blue eyes, with curly light brown hair. A year and a half later, the Percy family would welcome another boy to the fold, Lachlan. They soon had another two boys, Brett and Leon. Unfortunately, Brett died very young while still a baby from diphtheria. Lachlan grew into a sociable, good-looking, likeable young man, while Derek was quite withdrawn and socially awkward, but he was very intelligent. That much we know about Derek Percy early on. He seemingly passed all of his school exams with relative ease, despite not having to study that hard. His reports were always good. He was good at maths and had good comprehension and an aptitude for science. He attended primary school in Missions Point, New South Wales, moving in 1954 to Chelsea in Victoria, then in 1958 to Warrnambool in Victoria. These moves all for Ernie Percy's moving up through the ranks in his job. Ernie was a railway electrician for almost 25 years, before he landed a gig with the State Electricity Commission. Ernie Percy was a state champion sailor on a 12-foot skiff, so sailing and attending regattas was really the only big active hobby of the Percy family. Derek would be an avid sailor also, and this would lead to him joining the Navy, as we mentioned before. Ernie would host barbecues on the beach with his boys, and the family would attend many regattas on the Victorian West Coast, where... Ernie participated in one-man moth sailing, but it was a childhood of upheaval for the Percy boys. They moved six times between the ages of 8 and 19, and the boys attended five schools. Some cope with that better than others. Lachlan had no issues at all, adapting and relocating and making new friends. Derek, however, an already socially awkward loner, had a hard time adjusting and it really just served to isolate him further. In 1961, the Percy family moved to Mount Beauty, which is near Bright in Victoria. It was, and still is, a small, pretty, little alpine location nestled amongst the mountainous region where many avid skiers travel each year for days on the slopes. Ernie Percy had received a promotion. The Kiwa Valley's hydroelectric plant offered much work for tradesmen in the area, and it was around this time their fourth boy, Leon, would come along. Derek would settle in Mount Beauty High School, It was said he was obsessively neat, always clean, except for his haggard school tie, which clearly wasn't part of the standard uniform. It was at odds with the rest of his look. Once again, Percy was noted for his intelligence and aptitude, having to try very little for good marks at school. He made some friends who found him to be a bit sheltered and maybe bland, but all in all, likeable enough. These friends didn't like the brashness of his younger, stockier, blonde-haired brother, Lachlan, Others in the area thought Percy was aloof, weird, a bit intense at times, but not dangerous. He had this bad habit of constantly spitting, a real shallow spit out the side of his mouth. Once again, the behaviour was at odds with his prim appearance. 
He was described at times as being a dingo lurking around the shadows of a campsite. Very much a watcher, not a participator. The Percys lived in Freeborough Avenue, north of Mount Beauty, which was an apparently lower class area at the time, full of cube-liked prefabricated houses. It was around this time Percy met Ron Anderson at the age of 15 or so. Ron was one of a few who liked Percy, and among the many reflections schoolmates would have on Percy over the years, it was said he displayed little to no interest in girls. Percy's mother, Elaine, was said to be quite protective of him, which you can understand having lost Brett a few years earlier. Elaine refused to breastfeed Derek and occasionally commented to people that she would have loved to have girls, which some people inferred that was why she held Derek back a bit. But she was apparently different with Lachlan. He was allowed out and able to do some sports, etc. But Derek was very much on a tight leash, had to come home by certain times, wasn't allowed to play out around in the neighbourhood, and he wasn't allowed to actively participate in footy or cricket, staples in the town at the time of young lads. That didn't stop Percy from borrowing the occasional uniform and sneaking in a game. Ernie Percy was said to be quite harsh, the disciplinarian, and rarely spent a lot of time with Derek. On one occasion, Derek was showing his friend something, some sailing trophies, I believe, and Ernie Percy steamrolled in and went ballistic. Percy and his mate ran from the house, and allegedly this was something of a regular thing. Percy was said to be quite scared of his father. But still, the Percys would regularly go on these holidays to coincide with yachting regattas around the East Coast. They had a caravan and a VH Studebaker to tow with, and that's clearly where the household money went. The Percys weren't any better or worse off than others, but they were tight-fisted day to day, it was said. An example being Ernie would cut the boy's hair himself at home, not pay for the cut. Percy collected stamps, was into model aeroplanes, and played guitar, and he loved to read and draw. He carried around a pocket knife as a teenager, but this wasn't unusual in the small country town. It was very much a tool at this time in our country's existence, and while it might raise some eyebrows today, it certainly didn't back then. Friends and locals who didn't consider themselves friends would later recall stories that gave an insight into the direction that Derek Percy's mind would take. One time during a handball game, Percy helped a friend, Ken Hosking, cut the sole off his busted shoe. When Percy slipped making the cut and drove his pocket knife two centimetres into his own leg, Hosking jumped back a bit startled, but Percy apparently was just staring at it, no sign of pain or anything. Hosking noted he thought it strange at the time, almost as if Percy had enjoyed it. Percy also had this chain of locker keys which he used to flick the skin of fellow students to get a reaction, as if interested in the level of pain he was inflicting. One time, classmate Bill Hutton recalled Percy did it to him, and Hutton said if he did it again, he'd belt him. Percy gave him a steely-eyed stare and never did it again, although Hutton added he wasn't a coward necessarily. Hutton recalled him to have a quiet and strange demeanour. He was a weird bastard with a high-pitched, sniggering giggle. Hutton also alluded to something we'd see plenty more of as time went on, saying, Percy had a peculiar smell about him, like that of a soiled baby's nappy. At first I thought it was just bad breath, but over time figured it was the definite smell of excrement. Percy worked part-time in the nearby tobacco fields for the Hosking family, 
and he used the dollars he earned to save up and buy a maroon bicycle with distinctive ram horn style handles and he rode this thing everywhere, all around town. In 1964, women's underwear and negligees would begin disappearing from clotheslines around town and word would quickly get around that a snowdropper had come to town. I'd never heard of this expression before, but apparently they had one back then for people who got around stealing underwear off clotheslines. Mount Beauty was a small place, maybe 2,000 people there, so something like this wasn't going to go unnoticed. Word spread, Chinese whispers on the local grapevine, that the pale and effectual boy from the north who rode his maroon pushbike around town was the snowdropper, that Percy lad who spat all the time, and pretty quickly Ernie Percy, who was in a position of authority at the hydro plant, began threatening to sack anyone who talked shit about his son being the snowdropper. In late 1964, we'd see an all-new level of depravity creeping into the evolving adolescent mind of Derek Percy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. On a warm Sunday afternoon, Bill Hutton and Kim White decided to meander down to a local swimming spot on the Kiwa River. This spot, called the Gorge, had large wooden embankments up either side, so it houses a lot of old caves and rock formations. It's a pretty dense area. As White and Hutton were walking towards the river, they spotted what they thought was a girl wearing a pink negligee. She had another pile of female clothing on the ground next to her. But to the pair's shock, they soon realised this wasn't a girl at all, but their schoolmate, Derek. That's Percy, Hutton exclaimed, picking up a rock to throw at him. But White held him back, encouraging him to wait and see what Percy did. At least the night he fits him, Hutton quipped, as the pair stood and watched a glazed look on Derek Percy's face, but one that was full of excitement. Hutton felt something was very sinister in the look. They quickly realised Percy was the snowdropper, the rumours were true, but nothing prepared them for what Percy did next. He picked up a knife with a four-inch blade and began dancing around on the rock, making swishing noises, before repeatedly slashing the crutch out of a pair of female knickers he had on hand. Hutton and White looked on in shock, the pair of country boys hadn't seen anything like this before or since. Then Percy disrobed, stood at the water's edge naked and defecated into the river, before wiping himself with the slashed panties and putting his own clothes back on. He departed on his bike after hiding the female clothing under a nearby rock and never spotted Hutton or White as he did this. Hutton and White checked the clothing but left it there, and the next day they reported what they'd seen to their school teacher, who dismissed the claims from mischievous youngsters as lies. After all, Percy was the good student and these two were a bit more prone to misbehaviour. This is author Alan Whitaker, who wrote a book about Percy. 
commenting on Percy's obsession and how uncommon it was in the way it manifested itself. He had a fascination with his own faeces and what made him uh, even more unique was the fact that he involved his victim, that fascination. And a number of psychiatrists have said that in world terms that's very unusual for a person who's a coprophiliac to, to involve their victims in that predilection. Uh, just so it just shows how unique he is in, in world terms. Later that same year, Percy had what may well be his first encounter with a female, although it wasn't the kind that most of us have. At a local hall one night, I believe it was a movie screening, so it attracted many of the youngsters in town. Percy and many of those schoolmates we've mentioned were there. A girl named Linda Slight was also there, and at one point she was convinced to go and see Percy behind the hall by another young lad, all fairly innocently. Linda went, maybe thinking that they were going to have a kiss, but pretty quickly Derek Percy showed a decent glimpse of his future behaviours when it came to interacting with females. He told Linda, I've got something for you, before grabbing her forcefully by the wrist and shoving his erect penis into her hand. She recoiled at the incident and promptly left, but she never forgot that moment or the bleary, blue-eyed, angular face of the man who did it. Now we're coming to a part in this tale where fact is going to be interspersed with possibility. We've alluded to the many crimes that Derek Percy has been linked to, and although that wouldn't become public knowledge until many years later, we're going to talk about his potential involvement in chronological order, and then come back to the facts of Percy's life timeline, thereby seeing where he was at that point in many aspects of his life when these crimes were committed, whether he was the perpetrator or not. In early January 1965, the Percy family, with their van in tow, travelled to visit Elaine's mother near Gosford in New South Wales, then on to visit Ernie's mother in Deniston near West Ride in Sydney. They stayed here for a while and it was said they attended a yacht regatta at Botany Bay during this time. A couple of people from Mount Beauty would corroborate this timing with both tales from Derek and Lachlan about them visiting and staying with their grandmother in Sydney and going to this regatta. And this is important because on January the 11th, Marianne Schmidt and Christine Sharrock would be brutally murdered on Wanda Beach while on a family outing there with Schmidt's younger siblings. We covered this case in detail last episode, so we're not going to regurgitate the information surrounding it. We'd definitely recommend you go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already. But the two girls were brutally slain and sexually assaulted in a frenzied attack. The case remains unsolved, and there was an extensive police investigation at the time and many reinvestigations since. There are a few suspects, as we covered last week, but Derek Percy is right up the top of the list, Covering off a few things in particular, all circumstantial, but they link Derek Percy as a potential suspect in this crime. The beach connection. Percy would have a recurring connection with the beach due to his family interest in sailing. The crutch area of one of the girls' bathers had been cut out. Percy had been seen slashing the crutch of female underwear at the gorge a few weeks earlier by Hutton and White, as we covered before. After police arrested Percy at Cerberus, they found a diary in which he described his urges to sexually abuse, torture, mutilate and murder children. In one of these excerpts, Percy wrote that he would force one of his victims to drink beer. If we recall, autopsy results showed that Christine Sharrock had a blood alcohol reading of 0.015. In his diaries, he also wrote about abducting and killing two girls at Barnsley. 
a New South Wales beach in northern New South Wales. Police believed that this was code for Wanda Beach. There was also a picture discovered allegedly which Percy had drawn that bore striking similarities to the Wanda murder scene. Another small point is that Percy had a knife in a scabbard on his hip on the day that he was arrested for the murder of Yvonne Tui. The suspect at Wanda Beach also had a sheathed knife on his hip that day. And most compelling of all, if reportedly true, male clothing soiled with faeces was allegedly found near the Wanda crime scene. Percy wrote this fairly telling note in his yearbook that year, which I thought would be worth reading. It provides a bit of a chilling insight and is a bit childish at the same time. Favourite saying, it depends. Ambition, playboy. Probable fate, bachelor. Pet aversion, girls. And lastly, Perpetual occupation, isolating himself. In September 1965, the Percy family moved to Can Coben, near the Kosciuszko National Park, where Ernie had gotten a new job, once again still working with the SEC, but in the Snowy Mountains scheme. But Derek needed to stay behind in Mount Beauty to sit his leaving exams. So the Hosking family took him in during these few months. Derek was mates with their boy Ken, as we said, and this was the family Derek worked for in the tobacco fields. So he was helpful to them, and it was no big strain on them to take him in for a few months so he could finish his schooling. During this time, however, Percy's behaviour wouldn't go unnoticed. Ken Hosking described one time when he and Derek were out and about one day, mucking about as young blokes do, they stumbled upon a dead kangaroo carcass crawling with maggots. The sight sickened young Ken as it would most, but Percy was fascinated by it, couldn't take his eyes off it and kept laughing about it as the day wore on. Ken found it strange in hindsight as he recalled the memory years later after Percy had been caught and charged for murder. Another cringeworthy Percy tale from this year came from Hosking's neighbour, Angelina Casarotto. She had two young girls, aged seven and nine, and she'd witnessed this sly, glazed, faraway look in Derek Percy's eyes one day as he tinkered with his bicycle in the Hosking's backyard. She had an inbuilt motherly distrust of the boy and didn't let her girls go to the Hoskings without her present while Percy lived there. One time, the Casarottos came home to find a number of the girls' dresses missing, stolen from their house. Angelina instinctively knew it was Percy, but had no proof. She was beyond relieved when he left town for his family in Cancoban towards the end of the year. A short time later, a neighbour found her girl's dresses hidden in some nearby blackberry bushes, along with a doll. The doll's eyes had been cut out with a razor blade, and the body was mutilated. There were also clippings of women and children in swimsuits found, their genitals and breasts also mutilated. In January 1966, the Percys would once again leave for their annual two-week vacation, and during the time, Victorian students received their exam results. And lo and behold, Derek Percy, the young genius with an IQ of 122, who hardly had to study and breeze through most tests, had failed his exams. And one has to wonder, leading into the next part of our tale, which discusses an infamous unsolved Australian disappearance, If Derek Percy was involved, did this failure have a spurring effect on him, make him angry, or had his mind already succumbed to the sick and twisted thoughts he had, and this holiday simply allowed him to live out those fantasies? On January the 26th, 1966, 
which was a blistering hot Australia day, Jane, Anna and Grant Beaumont vanished without a trace from Glenelg Beach, Adelaide in South Australia. Friends of the Percy boys would once again place Derek in Adelaide at this time on his family holiday, and Percy himself placed himself at the beach that day, stating he could have had something to do with the disappearance, but couldn't remember a thing. The Beaumont children had left their home in Summerton Park around 9.45am and caught a bus to the beach. They were expected home by their mother Nancy around midday. They were last seen around 12.45am with a man on Jetty Road where they'd bought a pie and two pasties and they were never seen again after this. Percy was placed there by himself, his brother, friends and acquaintances in the time after this, although this would be years later, not at the time. There were things that lined up with Percy. Later writings discovered showed he planned to give children food when luring them. There was the beach connection, as with Wanda and the Yvonne Tui murder. The children were certainly in Percy's preferred age range. The suspect was described as being in his 30s or maybe early 40s with light brown, short, swept back hair, parted on the side, a thin face and clean shaven. He was suntanned and wearing blue bathers and a white stripe down the side of those. So there's parts there that agree and disagree with the description of Percy. The hair and the facial features match, but Percy was only 17 at the time, not 30, and never described as being suntanned. In fact, normally the opposite, pasty and ghost-like. The MO fits. He was certainly capable of the abduction, fits the suspect description for the most part, and he was in the area at the time. But it's generally hypothesised that the abductor of the Beaumont children had a car nearby to take the children, and how Percy would have had a car at this time on a family holiday, and we're not even sure if he was driving at this time, aged 17 or 18. Also, the case of the Beaumont children is often linked to the 1973 abduction of Joanne Ratcliffe and Kirsty Gordon from the Adelaide Oval, and it's often linked through MO and the suspect description. So if they are linked, that excludes Percy because he was incarcerated by 1973 for Yvonne Tui's murder. The details of the disappearance of the Beaumont children are vast, sad and infamous in Australia. The case has been widely covered by all forms of media over the years, and next episode it'll be our chance to do the same, so we won't delve into too much more on this episode, other than to say that Derek Percy remains a person of interest, high on the suspect list for this disappearance and presumed crime. Once moved to Kent Coburn, Percy would attend Coryong High. This didn't go smoothly. He'd failed his exams, so he was repeating now in the same year as his more popular and well-adjusted brother Lachlan. Percy was bullied, teased, and he got into altercations when people would push him too far. One such time was when a schoolboy named Wayne Gords referenced Percy looking like the identical picture of the Wanda Beach murder suspect, at the time being broadcast at the one-year anniversary of the slayings. Percy got mighty upset about this and confronted Gords, fists up, ready to go, But really, his time at Coryong was not a pleasant one at all. No one liked him, and he became more withdrawn and drawn into his over-sexualised fantasy world. Around this time, he started writing and drawing more of his sadistic sexual fantasies and twisted criminal plots on a more regular basis. A lot of these drawings and writings would prompt police in later years to link Percy to many unsolved child murders, 
a few of which we've discussed and a few more which we have to come. One of those is the unsolved murder of six-year-old Alan Redston. On September the 27th, 1966, the young boy had left his home to go buy an ice cream for his brother, but in the end, he sent his brother to get his own ice cream and went off to play in the local area. Brian and Violet Redston had four kids, Anne-Marie, seven, Alan, six, Peter, four, and baby Stephen. They'd recently moved to the area of Corraint near Canberra from Bendigo in Victoria. When Alan didn't return home that evening around 7pm, the Redstones reported him missing, and a frantic search ensued throughout the night for the young boy. Unfortunately, a volunteer searcher's German shepherd located the young boy the following morning at 8am, hidden in the reeds at nearby Yarralumla Creek. His face was submerged in water, he was hogtied, had cloth around his neck indicative of ligature strangulation, and he was wrapped in filthy carpet and a coat. He'd been bound with many items from a nearby dump site. He was a gorgeous young boy too, Alan, and this would have no doubt been devastating to the family for years, changed them forever. I don't think that's something you'd ever get over, but it's just something you would learn to live with, I guess. Alan Redston's death remains unsolved, but Derek Percy remains a suspect. It would become apparent to police that there'd been a couple of assaults, close calls, where the young victims had escaped in the preceding weeks to Redston's death. One eight-year-old boy had been found by teenagers close to death, hogtied and wrapped inside a sheet of plastic with his mouth and neck also tied. And another pair of youngsters described an attack on the younger of the pair by an older boy who'd been playing cops and robbers with them when he suddenly became aggressive and tied up the younger of the two boys. The older of the lads was able to ward off the attacker. He eventually fled, but it was a close call. Victims from both attacks produced an identikit that looked a lot like Percy. The suspect had been riding a red push bike with ram's horns handlebars, much like the one Percy used to ride around Mount Beauty. Percy confirmed years later that he took a family holiday in Canberra in 1966, at the time of Alan's murder, and it was ascertained he had a relative there. His discovered writings also detailed using plastic and tying up his young victims and asphyxiating or suffocating them. Interestingly, it was also said that in his younger years, Percy's grandmother had administered an unusual punishment on him when he misbehaved. She would hogtie him and put him in a locked room for a period of time for being naughty. And to cap it all off, a green and gold striped tie was found at the crime scene, reminiscent of the school tie of Mount Beauty High School, but much coarser. Percy wouldn't have needed his Mount Beauty tie any longer after transferring to Corriong when the family moved. There's also things that don't align with Percy in this case. There was an arrest made, I believe, early in the investigation of a young man who was allegedly responsible for some of those earlier attacks you mentioned, Chloe. However, he wasn't charged and he was released, but police believe them to be connected and this person remains a person of interest. Secondly, Alan Redston's body hadn't been mutilated, which was a Percy signature. Things at school and in Cancoban weren't going well for Derek Percy at this time. School, as we said, was not much fun for Percy. He was described as surly and withdrawn. One day in mid-1966, Percy lured five and six-year-old sisters, Tanya and Lynette Harrison, they were neighbours of Percy's, into his family caravan, 
where he told them to pull their pants down. They did so, being innocent kids and not really knowing what the normally nice Derek was wanting or why. But they were saved from what could have occurred after this when their mother called out for them. The girls innocently told their mother what Percy had done and the girl's father confronted Ernie Percy directly on what had happened, telling him to get his son to a doctor because he's sick to deal with it or he would. It was said Elaine Percy booked Derek into the local GP, but how much follow-through there was with anything after this, we don't know. It was a different time in dealing with these psychological issues. Around this same time that he was supposed to see the doctor, Percy was caught wearing women's clothing and his parents found disturbing sexual fantasy letters, which they burned. His grandmother found more and these too were burned. Percy tried to battle through year 12 at high school, but by this point it appears with the power of hindsight, the young genius had well and truly succumbed to his dark thoughts and he dropped out. Ernie Percy had cashed in his chips at the SEC and relocated his family to Jesmond, Newcastle, where he moved into private business ownership, setting up a shell service station. So Derek naturally plastered a Go Well, Go Shell sticker on his recently acquired Datsun, now that he had his driver's licence. Derek worked for his father here for a short time after leaving school before November 1967 when he joined the Navy. He displayed an aptitude for the job, was said to be officer material, and he graduated top of his class a few months later. Percy is posted to Crib Point in Victoria for his training aboard the HMAS Cerberus. Around this time, a six-year-old girl from Noble Park narrowly avoids being abducted from a man whose description all but matches Derek Percy to a T. This would come out down the track, but not at this time. A few months later, Percy is sent to Sydney aboard the HMAS Catapult in Darlinghurst. Percy was assigned fire sentry duty as the ship went through a year-long refurbishment. During this time, he lived at the nearby naval base in Garden Island. On Saturday the 18th of May 1968, three-year-old Simon Brooke was abducted from the front yard of his family home in Glebe a suburb between Garden Island and the docked Navy vessel Percy was posted to. He would have regularly passed through Glebe on his way to work. The Brook House was once again close to the beach, next to Jubilee Park on Sydney Harbour. Donald Brook was a lecturer in the fine arts, and Phyllis, a former dancer from London, they'd settled in Australia in 1962 and moved from Canberra to Sydney in 1967, buying this small house adjacent to Jubilee Park for around $15,000. Simon was a shy, fair-haired youngster who was wearing brightly coloured clothing the day he was abducted. The Brooks had let him play in their front yard while they had lunch with some visiting friends inside their house. When Phyllis called for Simon to come in around 12.30pm, the boy didn't respond, and the Brooks resumed an increasingly panicked search for their three-year-old son until eventually they reported him missing to police in the early afternoon. Their searches throughout the night were fruitless. At 7.20am the following morning, Italian builder Felici Lampensona was working at a block of units on Glebe Point Road when he went for a short stroll to relieve himself. After doing so and turning to head back to the job site, Lampersona saw what he thought was a large doll under a nearby rotting canvas, but upon closer inspection made the horrifying discovery that it was the body of a young boy, nude from the waist down. There was a lot of blood and the boy had been brutally mutilated 
his penis and scrotum cut off with a razor blade which had been left nearby. The boy had been strangled and suffocated with newspaper shoved down his throat. It turned out the mutilation had occurred post-mortem. This was 400 metres from the Brook home and shatteringly for the young family, the body was identified as Simon's. A truck driver named Eric Barnier came forward later saying he'd seen a young man accompanying a young boy who matched Simon's description near Jubilee Park around the time of his disappearance. In fact, only five minutes or so after the Brooks had discovered he was missing, Barnier described the man, 20 to 24 years old, 5 foot 7 to 8 inches tall, deep set eyes, a high and wide forehead, brown hair brushed back, a straight long nose with a narrow bridge, an angular chin and a wide mouth. This description fit Derek Percy to a T. The problem was it also fit others. There were five other initial suspects from the area who were all eventually ruled out. One actually falsely confessed and was deemed mentally ill, but the case was further stumped by truck driver Barnier picking this mentally ill guy out of a lineup. It was only years later Percy was connected. If we recall his conversation with Ron Anderson, where he stated he could have killed young Simon Brooke, but couldn't recall anything about it, other than he'd been in glebe turning off at the railway cutting where the body was found. So it was determined from this info Percy would have driven straight past the Brook house. And if we also recall in the introduction, one of Percy's fantasies read words to the effect of, if the boy is three or under, the penis comes off. It's also widely reported that the razor blade found at the scene was the same type that was issued to sailors. While that's true, these razor blades were issued to hundreds and possibly thousands of groups, companies and associations at the time, not exclusively to the Navy. So it was a line of inquiry, but hardly enough to link the police to the Navy specifically at that time. Later that year, Percy joins HMAS Sydney stationed at Crib Point when he goes on 18 days leave, which at the time, according to him, he travelled to Melbourne. So this is between August 5th and 22nd. On Saturday the 10th of August, Jean Stilwell had gone grocery shopping and told her three kids to remain home in their flat in Middle Park. When she returned, her two eldest, Karen, 11, and Gary, 9, hadn't obeyed her instructions. They'd wandered off to peruse the neighbourhood. Jean dressed her youngest, Linda, aged 7, to go and find her siblings and tell them to come home for lunch. Karen returned three hours later, telling her mum that Gary and Linda were fishing. Then Gary returned a while later, saying Linda had gone to the police station to collect some fishing poles with a couple of young boys after she'd been hanging out with these youngsters near Luna Park. Linda never returned home and was only sighted once since, and that was close to the time of her disappearance. Jean made inquiries with police and reported her daughter missing, but police showed up four hours after the report and the pair of young constables reeked of alcohol. A lady would come forward after this and once again, feeling like a bit of a broken record here, Describe a man who bore a striking similarity to Derek Percy, 
who had been sitting near a young girl spotted rolling down the hillside, playing near the lower esplanade in St Kilda. So there's a similar pattern here. If we go back to Ron Anderson's conversation with Percy again in years later, Percy would admit to being in the area, having driven through St Kilda on his way to the White Ensign Club. Police would also later discover maps in Percy's possession linking him to Linda Stilwell's abduction and probable murder. He'd highlighted some areas near where she'd last been seen on this map. But in the end, Linda Stilwell's body was never found and her family have had to endure her loss and the lack of closure of not knowing what happened to their daughter and little sister. In November 1968, Percy boarded the HMAS Queenborough and embarked upon the first of three round trips around Australia. He returned in February 1969, and it's anyone's guess where exactly he was when the ships docked and stayed for an extended period. It would later be suggested, according to Shell service station touring maps found in Percy's belongings, that he had done some driving in other states when docked. In April 1969, Percy is stationed at this time at the HMAS Cerberus near Western Port Bay. Around this time, a 12-year-old girl escapes a potential abduction from someone fitting Percy's description along the Mornington Peninsula. And on the 20th of July 1969, Derek Percy abducts and murders Yvonne Tui near the beach in Warneet near Western Port Bay. Percy is caught and charged with her murder and he led the police to her body the next day. We covered this heinous crime at the beginning of the episode because this was the first time Percy was caught for a serious offence. So we've circled the wagon right back around. I just thought it was important to cover it in this way because that's how it unfolded in real time. Once he was caught and being held, this is where in the timeline Ron Anderson had his little chat with Percy and Percy placed himself at most of the aforementioned places when those unsolved crimes occurred but he still had his trial for Yvonne Tui's murder to go. The police were thinking of him for other things, but the trial and putting this guy away was the priority. When it came time for his trial, it was asserted that he had committed the crime in a frenzy and basically his mind had shut down thereafter, compartmentalised what he had done and suppressed it, meaning he had no recollection of what he had done. And Percy kept up this line throughout his life that he had no memory of this or other crimes he could have potentially committed. Percy was diagnosed as criminally insane and he pleaded insanity at trial and was sentenced to be detained at the governor's pleasure due to the danger he posed to the community. The governor's pleasure law was anachronistic from colonial times, really, inherited from the British system. It basically meant the governor could detain a criminally insane person indefinitely From 1970 to 1986, Percy would reside in the psychiatric wing of Pentridge Prison before he'd be transferred to several other locations, Beechworth, Castlemaine, back to Beechworth, Ararat, then to Port Phillip Prison. In prison, he became a chess champion, a stamp collector, and one of the best tennis players in the division he was in. He continued to smoke cigarettes while incarcerated, but kept himself fit, it was said. Amidst all of that in the late 90s, there were changes to the archaic Governor's Pleasure Law and Percy received his first custodial review, but he's inevitably kept in custody indefinitely. In 2004, Percy got a second custodial review, but he was refused release or transfer to a psychiatric facility. 
Victorian state opposition leader at the time, Robert Doyle, probably more recently known as Lord Mayor Robert Doyle, used Percy as a political platform when campaigning, vowing to introduce Hannibal Lecter laws to indefinitely jail people who posed such a significant danger to the community. And this response from Doyle was really off the back of news reports that Percy had entered a sexual offenders rehabilitation program with the view to potentially getting parole in the future, which scared many people in the community, particularly Shane Spiller, the young lad who had helped put Percy away for murdering his friend. Spiller was awarded $50,000 victim's compensation in the year 2000, but he'd end up taking off into hiding when he heard of Percy's potential release when the laws changed. I really feel for Spiller, witnessing and enduring what he did. Around this time is when things really kicked off with regard to the police re-examining Percy's potential involvement in the series of unsolved child murders and abductions throughout the late 1960s, some 35 years later. A multi-jurisdictional task force, Operation Heats, is established to look into this. Between 05 and 07, police compile briefs and submit to the Department of Public Prosecutions to have Percy charged with the murder of Simon Brooke. But in the end, the DPP rules that there's not enough evidence to charge Percy. They resubmit again, but it's declined. In 2007, police raid a South Melbourne storage warehouse where Percy had kept a whole bunch of his personal items. Police seized 35 boxes worth of paraphernalia and discovered some sickening items, including pornographic material, sadistic drawings and diaries, maps, which provided some great insights into his knowledge of locations where many of these crimes had occurred. One of these maps had the West Ride train station marked near where Marianne Schmidt and Christine Sharrock had boarded that fateful day on January 11th, 65. Another was marked through Glebe, where Simon Brooke was killed. And finally, one was marked with a line near the spot where young seven-year-old Linda Stilwell was last seen. Percy spoke quite enthusiastically with the detectives to begin with. He'd maintained his cold, blue-eyed stare, an effeminate voice, but he was much older now, bald and with a long grey beard. This picture of him is what most people would recognise, and we'll post that on our Instagram and Facebook pages. There'd be many news stories come out about Percy's potential involvement in more crimes than just that one murder. Percy, while polite and subservient, maintained his could-have-but-don't-remember-anything responses when queried directly about committing any of the crimes, but he'd openly admit to his fetishes and being in the locations where many of the murders and disappearances took place. Ironically, it worked out in the public's best interest in the end that Percy was detained after being found not guilty because if he'd been convicted, he would have served his sentence and then ended up back out in the community. A slew of psychiatric assessments in the years that followed all concluded that Percy wasn't criminally insane, but had problems that couldn't be treated in any psychological institution. I think the following clinical determination says it best. Percy is a highly dangerous, sadistic pedophile who should never be released from safe custody. He is not certifiable, neither is he psychiatrically treatable, and he is totally unsuited to a mental institution. Percy earned $200 a fortnight from his Navy pension since his incarceration and subsequent discharge, amassing around $200,000 in the bank. That's about four times more than Shane Spiller got for putting Percy behind bars. In mid-2013, Percy was said to be terminally ill, 
and police detectives spent a lot of time interviewing him in hopes of getting a deathbed confession or confessions. Detective Wayne Newman was said to be instrumental in talking to Percy in hopes of getting some closure for families. Incidentally, Newman is the detective who you mentioned, Sean, last week, who said that there was defecated male clothing found at Wanda Beach. On the 23rd of July 2013, Derek Percy died of lung cancer around 2am in a secure ward at St Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne. He was 64 and Victoria's longest-serving prisoner. In 2014, a coroner's inquest found Percy to be responsible for the murder of Linda Stilwell, but her body has never been found. Percy took the location and probably many other secrets to his grave. Wow, what a case. I think that um, psychological assessment of Percy towards the end sums him up that he was too dangerous to be anywhere, but he didn't really belong anywhere. I think that is almost how he lived his life. It's scary. And cases that involved someone hurting young people and children is so difficult. It makes you want to go out there and help or something. I almost feel myself standing up as we're talking because I just want to take action. I don't know if that makes sense. And, you know, all murder is senseless, but children just should be protected and just it's so hard to talk about. Uh, The things that he did were clearly sick and the pattern he showed early on of being obsessed and violent with women's underwear and feces was clearly psychologically related. And even though the law that put him away was outdated, I'm glad that despite being unfit to stand trial, he was held somewhere safe that meant he couldn't hurt anyone else. I so wish they found the bodies of the missing victims and that they got a deathbed confession. It's so heartbreaking that those families have to try and move on with the added pain of not being able to say goodbye in that way. It's so sad. It's also very tempting with a case like this to run back over all the cases and give an opinion on whether you think he was good for one or not for another, but I'm not sure that's going to do any good. He's dead. The victims are dead four whose bodies have never been found. It's highly likely he was involved in many more than just the murder of Yvonne Tui and Linda Stilwell, but how many more, we will never know. Derek Percy, as many of the headline grabs say, is potentially our country's worst child serial killer. And for me, the thought of losing a child like that is just worse than the murder of an adult. And not that one life is worth more than another, but... No parent should ever have to bury their child or worse, lose them, presume them dead and never be able to bury or cremate them and and don't have that closure. And that might just be the parent in me talking, but personally, I just don't think it's something you could ever recover from. I feel very deeply for all of the families that uh, we've talked about today. Yeah, definitely. Um, To move on to a bit of a positive note, uh, we're going to go through some five-star reviews and then our happy thoughts. So five-star reviews from this week. Um, The first one is from someone that we know um, with the username Wogdoc and it's called I'm a Podcast Guy Now. It says, I've never listened to podcasts before but I had to check in and see what a couple of old 
high school buds have got going on and you've got me hook, line and Patreon. (laughs) You guys fill in my hour and a half drive home from the city every Monday night after night school and it makes the drive a breeze. Keep up the thorough research and professional delivery with a perfect amount of humour. I legit love it and look forward to each episode. (laughs) Love, wog dog, kiss, hug, kiss. (laughs) Thank Uh, you, The next one is entitled Excellent and it's from Kent Park Street. says, this podcast is great. Keep doing it your own way. It works. Uh, and the next one is called Thoroughly Enjoying from Margie 803. And it says, this is a great podcast, well-researched. I'm really enjoying the presentation by two likeable hosts. Well done. Thank you so much. Thank you. The next one is called Great Aussie True Crime Podcast by BB1976A. It says, I have been enjoying this podcast. I just listened to the episode on Jimmy James. It was fascinating to hear about this incredible man and what he did to help so many people, which is so good because we both love that episode. (laughs) We did love that. So it was nice to hear that you enjoyed that one. Thank you. And the last one is from Joyce Not Interest and it says, does everyone really need to have their reviews read out? Um, Which brings us to an interesting point. Exactly, Joyce. Thank you. It's a perfect little positive segue for... Uh, us uh, really talking about finishing up reading the five-star reviews anyway, as we sort of alluded to in the last couple of weeks, looking to uh, cut down on a few of uh, the things to condense the length of the show and keep it all sort of focused and things like that. We will probably still read the odd one out from time to time. Certainly on our Patreon episodes, we'll discuss those, um, but maybe just give more of a general thank you towards the end of the episodes moving forward. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for your comment and your five stars, Joyce. Not interested. Appreciate it. And happy thoughts. Sean, do you have one this week? I do. I don't know. It's a happy thought though. It's a little bit... (laughs) So I mentioned to you before and a few weeks ago on an episode how... I'm working in South Melbourne at the moment and I'd, I'd narrowed down the coffee shop that I go to in the morning. Super important. Very important, very important for me. Uh, I tried several in the area a few times before settling on this one place. The problem I've got now is that the joint I've picked, when I get my coffee there in the morning, I'm walking to work, I'm having to walk past all the other coffee shops, all the other <laughs> ones that I've, I haven't picked and all the baristas, I just feel like their <laughs> gazes are just looking at, you know, searing into the <laughs> just they're looking at me with the other company's coffee cup going, Yeah, I know. I know that guy. I know I know where your allegiances lie. And I just I'm getting really worried that there's going to be that they're gonna <laughs> I shouldn't be too worried, but I've written there as a joke that if I don't rock up next week to record, Chloe, you're gonna be covering the South Melbourne coffee shop murder of me. <laughs> Okay. I feel like you've made a strategic error in picking your coffee shop with all this consideration and taste testing. You didn't think about the fact that picking the coffee shop furthest away from your office meant that you had to walk past all the others. You know, that's a pretty simple thing when you take that much time to pick a coffee shop. Yeah, but see, I was focusing on the coffee. <laughs> yeah, right. Not my safety. It's the whole experience, I guess. Yeah, not, not my safety. I wasn't like... I'm going to pick, I wasn't factoring the length of time from the office in my assessment of the coffee. <laughs> Rookie error. Oh, yeah, I know. I should have considered it. So now, you know, anyway, don't hurt me, South Melbourne baristas. <laughs> in the slight chance that there's a Venn diagram of the <laughs> podcast listeners and South Melbourne coffee shop baristas, yeah. <laughs> they're going to be listening to this. <laughs> um, nice one. Well, my happy thought is that, that I'm better. I, you know, was sick for over a week and I got to the point was when I was sick that I just really 
felt like I didn't appreciate when I was well, you mm. know, that feeling. And I'm just having one of those weeks where I'm excited about being able to breathe through my nose, mm. where I'm, I can smell my coffee, where I can go to the gym and work for a whole day and be focused and not exhausted. And I'm just in that fresh post-sickness euphoria. So that's my that's happy good. thought. I'm glad to hear you better. You were very sick, much more sick than I was. <laughs> that showed with the overwhelming response <laughs> you got in our Facebook group. <laughs> <laughs> From your mum especially, that was very funny. Yeah. <laughs> and much appreciated. Thank you, everyone, that took the time to say get well and didn't do so to Sean. It was very funny and heartwarming. <laughs> um, and if you have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, don't forget you can email us at truebluetruecrime at gmail.com. Um, you can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Dash Podcast, or find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. And if you'd like to support the show, don't forget you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. And for $2 a month, you'll get bonus episodes, case updates, debrief, blooper reels, and much, much more. We're both well, as I said, and probably getting flu shots, so they'll be <laughs> much more consistent. Um, and if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find the show as well. We're hitting record on our next Patreon episode now where we're slowly making our way back to Australia from the USA in our little Patreon aeroplane. And we're stopping in Hawaii to refuel. And while we're there, we're going to talk about the case of the Honolulu Strangler, a serial killer from the mid-1980s who's evaded capture to this day. Thanks again for listening, everyone. We'll be back in our next main episode covering the disappearance of the Beaumont children. And we'll catch you all then. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.